Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership. I'm Keith Pankow, the host and producer of this podcast, and I have the wonderful privilege to be here with Nyla Blides Wiley, who is a life and leadership coach who helps leaders tap into their power to build personal and professional lives that are whole, good, and full of possibility through high-touch coaching that integrates the outdoors. Nyla teaches her clients to go from feeling invisible to imitable in every area of their lives. She also consults with brands and organizations on how to create inclusive organizational cultures that allow all individuals to shine authentically at work and facilitates professional development through programs for Black, Indigenous, and people of color employees. Nyla began her career in the consumer packaged goods industry, which gave her invaluable experience in marketing and strategic planning. She then went on to start and run a digital marketing agency that focused on creating impactful, inclusive content for lifestyle brands. She earned her master's in communication and leadership studies from Gonzaga University and holds a bachelor's in communication from the University of Southern California. Her work centers on the belief that when we stand in the truth of our authentic selves, we can live and lead in a way that creates real change in our world. When she's not coaching or speaking, you can find her hiking with her husband or playing intense games of hide and go seek with her two tiny kids. Well, welcome, Nyla. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, just wonderful. I first met Nyla when we were in Gonzaga University, and we had the opportunity to climb Mount Adams, as I talked a little bit about with Lori in her episode. And it was just such a wonderful experience for me in my life that I continue to go back to it in many of my leadership discussions and thoughts and how to even push myself to greater limits. And one of the realizations I've had as I've continued to think about that is how while there's a summit of a mountain, it's very easy to see and visualize the summit of each of our own individual mountains is often quite different and harder to visualize for us when we're looking at a different person. And so while not everyone in the class made the actual summit of the mountain, I felt that everybody in that class reached the summit of their own of some degree. And as I was thinking about you in that class, I was curious what your thoughts were on that experience and how that helped you move forward. Yeah. Yeah. I love your analogy about just mountains and summits and our own personal summits. Cause I think that that is so spot on. And I, I think just like you, that class really was, had such a great impact for me in terms of just the way that I think about leadership. And I remember the name of the course was like leadership and hardiness. And I thought that that was so, <laughs> you know, I think about that a lot, you know, what does it take to be hardy or what does it take to be resilient? Especially, you know, we've gone through a lot in the last three years or so in, in just in our society. So how do you come back to those principles? But yeah, I agree. That class really did. And just that entire experience of backpacking and, you know, setting out to some of that mountain. And for me, that was my first big experience with the outdoors like that. I had never, you know, camped. I had never like backpacked. I had never hiked that long. I had never gone up, but like I'd never done any of that. So it was just such a, a novel experience for me, but it was completely, it completely shaped, changed my life and the way that I approach things. And I tell people all the time, that is probably the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life. And I've had two kids. So it was, it really <laughs> did have a huge impact on my life and just the way that I perceive things and the way that I move forward. And I think also uh, just being to being able to embrace the outdoors as well. Yeah, that's great. I, I did not realize that that was your first major experience in the outdoors like that. And that 
that just speaks to your own grit, if you will, of you did very well on that climb. And so if that was your first experience, that was definitely not an easy first experience with backpacking or mountaineering or anything like that. So definitely not a beginner's course, if you will. But I love that idea. I forgot that the name was leadership and hardiness and resilience. Yeah. And, and especially, and I love that you referenced these last three years with the pandemic and all the many different things that have been going on, you know, the, the wider dialogue on social justice, the many more national disasters. There's been a lot that's been going on that requires us to tap into that resiliency a little bit more. And one of the things I took away from that class, because I had always thought that resiliency was just something that people had or they didn't have. But what I learned in that course is that that's not necessarily true. We can build organizational structures that are more resilient, that invite more resiliency from the people and create a more hardy person. That just really resonated with me. And I thought a little bit more about that. And so as you've kind of moved forward in your professional life, and as you take on this role of coaching and speaking, how do you help people tap into that their organizational cultures or their own personal ability to become more resilient and hardy? I think we have a lot of this model to us through the course. And I think a lot of it does come back to uh, just kind of like empathy. So like really being empathetic for everyone and their lived experiences and, and their different levels of expertise and where they're, where they're kind of coming to in the process. And then I think also having that kind of like openness and curiosity for other people. And I think the way that we can foster that is by using that, the, the empathy, the openness, the, the curiosity, to really help others explore that for themselves. You know, what does grit and hardiness and resilience, what does that mean for me? You know, how can I use my particular set of strengths and, and my values and, you know, my experiences to be able to facilitate that inside myself? So I think by using a lot of those tactics of like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to approach this with a whole heart and <laughs> with openness and curiosity. I think that can really help to facilitate others in experiencing or, or exploring, you know, what does that all mean to me? And how can I kind of like project this in my own life? Yeah, I really like that. And as you were talking, I was thinking about how Dr. Popa, as soon as we were done climbing, we gathered together and we talked through it. We talked through everybody's challenges were, and I think that discussion, creating that dialogue is really what opened up my mindset to be able to recognize that that getting to the top of the mountain wasn't necessarily the end-all be-all for the experience. There was a deeper experience occurring in that class that didn't mean that you had to get to the top of the mountain to experience that or to realize that. And that, you know, that dialogue, that showing that empathy and listening to each other as we talked. I don't know if you remember, but we had to do a final project for that class I really just loved that project that Dr. Popo gave us a lot of freedom to do what we wanted. And I created this PowerPoint presentation with, with pictures and images because I do like to take photography. I gave a spiritual animal representation of all the people in the class. And I loved it because it, it helped me think deeper about the experience that all the other people had and it increased my ability to have empathy for them. And I also had a lot greater appreciation for their, their experience and not just my own. And that helped me understand that concept of resiliency so much deeper. Yeah, I agree. I really love that the way, the way that they structured the class. I mean, it just had so many different kind of analogies and metaphors. So just life or even an organization where we were all coming to, to it like in we, you know, we were all individuals doing this course and there was like 
coursework and everything leading up to it. And we didn't know each other except through through our little dashboard. And this was, gosh, I don't know, almost 10 years ago. So online learning was not as <laughs> advanced as it was now. So, you know, we just knew each other from what we were writing each other in our, our little discussion boards. But I think, you know, what you just hit on where we kind of had to come together, we had to really take into account everybody else's strengths and weaknesses. We had to lend a hand where we could. Uh, I think it really was like kind of like a greater, like almost like allegory for just life and especially like organizational culture and how you can create an organization that is hardy, like how, how you can create an organization that has that empathy. And I think that we are able in our kind of small little class heading up this mountain, able to really exhibit that. I like that. Now you do a ton of work with people in the outdoors now. And I'm curious, was this spurred by that experience at all? Or did that kind of help motivate you to do that? Yeah. So I, and it's so interesting how life just kind of comes full, full circle like that. Like, so like I said, I was not a very outdoorsy person when I did that. I just, I read the course description and I was like, that sounds amazing. Like, I, I don't know, something just really spoke to me about it. And I had done like other things. I had you know, gone hiking and done like small things like that. But that was definitely like the biggest outdoor adventure I've ever had to that point. And uh, I think that it did kind of spark a little bit of something in me. I think it really did show me that I could do hard things. You know, I, I could, I do, did have this inner resiliency, this inner grit that I could bring out to do kind of these tough things. And that really started, uh, I think I made a lot of the connections between kind of personal development and leadership development and growth and the outdoors once I moved from Southern California to Salt Lake City, uh, Utah, where I am right now. So once I got here and really started exploring the outdoors and, you know, because it's everywhere here, it's so big, <laughs> that's such a big part of the, the Utah culture is the outdoors. So once I was like, okay, I'm going to really embrace this. I'm going to get out. I'm going to, you know, hike. I'm going to ski. I'm going to do all these fun things. I really started just kind of feeling like I was rediscovering parts of myself that I had lost, you know, a long time ago or had been covered up by, you know, all of the fun stuff in society. And that was what really, I think, made the full connection where I was like, oh, there actually is kind of a one-to-one connection between, you know, personal growth and uh, professional growth and leadership growth and mindfulness and all of this great stuff that we talk about and also just reconnecting with the outdoors. So that's what uh, really solidified me in the work that I do right now with Color Outside and my coaching. I love that. Now, tell me more about Color Outside. I follow you on social media, so I know about it, but tell our listeners about it because I love the posts that you do on social media. I love following it. I think there's incredible value in what you do with your organization there. So I'd love for our listeners to hear more about it. Yeah. So Color Outside is an organization and it's focused on helping women of color reconnect with their joy through outdoor adventures. So locally, we do all types of in-person events. You know, we, we go on hikes. Just the other day, a couple of weeks ago, we went snowshoeing together. Uh, we're going skiing this upcoming weekend. Um, you know, I host retreats and really it's about helping uh, to create that safe space that, you know, kind of like that course did for me, where it kind of created this safe space where I could try something out that was so novel and so foreign to me. And I could say, okay, I'm going to like try this mountaineering thing and see how it goes and and just reap a lot of those benefits. So I'm really trying to do the work of creating that safe space for women of color to 
be able to get outside and explore and build community in that way, but also to just rediscover those parts of ourselves that make us us, that, you know, light us up, make us excited, um, make us feel carefree, connect us back to our joy. I think it just has tremendous benefits, just wellness benefits, uh, you know, our own kind of mental health, physical health, all of those great things. Yeah, I love it. As you were talking, I just now made the connection of how important it is to structure a challenging environment in such a safe manner that you can fail and still feel like you succeeded. And and that's just incredible. I think Dr. Pope, like we've talked about, did such a good job of making the course, although you didn't get to the top of the mountain, you didn't fail the course, you, you still learned. And so I love this idea that you take people out and you create a safe space to expand their horizons and, and also touch them back to some of their inner things that they may have forgotten. And I was introduced to Ben Beckhart here in Mexico, who has been a CEO of some major companies and helped bring General Mills and grow it in Mexico here. And just a phenomenal guy. He wrote a book, Lead with Character. And that was my most recent episode on the podcast. And he, when I was first introduced to him by my uncle, we did some some meetings introductory to kind of get to know each other. And then we decided he was going to be on my podcast and that he was going to have me on his radio show. And we've been going back and forth to increase our, he does so much here in Mexico and, but one of the things he told me when I first met him is that he works on deprogramming, if you will, all the things, all these bad habits we learn, um, trying yeah. to adapt ourselves to organizational structure, trying to, to get ahead in corporations. So he works on kind of helping people become more true to themselves and, and deprogramming those things they just learn to adapt to. And I really just love that thought that, you know, too often we lose a part of ourselves um, in our work. You know, we, we grow as well, but sometimes we give up a part of ourselves. And I think it's helpful that you take these women out and you help them rediscover that. Yeah, absolutely. I call it coming home to ourselves because I think that, you know, we're born and we're these perfect little beings and we're really true to ourselves and really, really have an understanding of who we are. And, you know, we're growing and we're learning. But I think that as we grow, like so many things kind of like layer on top of us to make us forget that. So whether it's uh, just society or work or parents or, you know, all of education, school, like all of these different structures just take us further and further away from who we are at our core. And yeah, I think that once we're able to like deprogram, uh, like you said, or just kind of like unpack some of those layers and come back home to ourselves, it's, you know, hugely, you know, immensely important to be able to do that. Yeah. And then oftentimes we have a newer vigor or energy about the work we do do because we recognize that we can come at it with a new life or with our full self, as opposed to just giving that part of ourself we give to work while we give other part to our friends or another part to our family or, you know, all these different cultures. We sometimes feel like we have to segment ourselves or compartmentalize, but you know, if we can learn to give our full self to these attributes, we can actually have more ability to achieve greater possibilities. Yes, yeah, I think so. And I think that's one of the things that I remember most about my time spent in corporate, uh, which was not the best time for me. I I don't have the best personalities for uh, (laughs) working in a cubicle, but I think one of the things that really bothered me the most towards the end before I decided to like quit my job and start doing my own thing was that feeling a feeling like okay I showed up in this you know parking lot and I had to like turn myself off for the day or like for eight or nine or ten hours and then come back out and then try and like turn myself back on and I think the more you do that the harder 
it feels to turn yourself back on and, and get back to yourself 100%. And I just did not like that feeling. It felt like very much uh, like an inner conflict. And I think that was definitely one of the biggest things that made me say, I think I need something else. I think there might be something better out there for me. Yeah, I love that. I, as I continue to study and really think about leadership and learning and all these things and how they go together, one of the things that I feel very strongly about is this need for dialogue to increase the value of diversity in our corporations. Now we might focus on diversity. We might even think we're being somewhat inclusive, but I have this really strong belief that if we don't create a dialogue with people that allows them to embrace who they truly are and not leave part of themselves at home, we're not actually reaping the benefits of diversity. We might bring a diverse body together, but we're all, we're all training ourselves to think the same And we're losing all those benefits of diversity of those, you know, getting an idea and building the layers upon layers or getting a different perspective that says, you know, this really isn't going to work for this audience group because of A, B, and C, right? And so I think that there's this need, even in corporate world, which we we sometimes in today's world, because we're we're hyper-focused on these kind of metrics of diversity inclusion, but not the actual benefits of diversity and inclusion too often is kind of my belief on there. You do a lot of work with this. So how do we teach people to create a safe space? Because we want, we want to create a safe space, but we also need to, you know, be respectful of people as well. Safe and respect are very vital to this creating dialogue, but how do we do it? That really invites people to show that vulnerability to share more of themselves that they might be hesitant to do so because they're too afraid to, of adapting to the company culture. Yeah, absolutely. I think you uh, hit it spot on where I think a lot of times we focus on diversity, which like you said, it, it might just be bringing different types of people. And that's an easy metric to check. Oh, okay. We have, you know, four of these people, we have five of these people, you could check the box. So I think it's definitely moving from uh, focusing so much on the diversity to moving into like the inclusion, you know, are we building a place where people feel included, moving even past that to a sense of belonging, you know, are we building a culture where folks really feel like they belong, you know, they are a part of this team, they really feel like they're adding value to the fabric of the culture, and, and they feel comfortable to do so. So I think that some of the ways that we can make sure that we are allowing our folks to show up and really kind of bring all of themselves is making sure that we're creating that psychological safety to do so. You know, we're, we're all humans. And if we don't feel safe and we kind of have this thing in the back of our heads where it's like, oh, if I do this or if I, I say this or I wear these clothes or whatever it is, if I show up as my full self, it's going to be dangerous in some way. Maybe it'll cost me my job. Maybe it'll cost me a promotion or, or maybe I just won't be in the in-group anymore. You know, we won't do it. So I think that that's the first step in making sure that we're allowing our employees or team members to feel really safe to bring their full self to work is um, making sure we're creating a, a psychologically safe place to do that. And I think we can do that by creating a supportive culture that's giving people some autonomy. I think we could also make sure that we're creating a culture that invites that curiosity and also experimentation, even if that's kind of opening us up for more, you know, quote unquote mistakes, but acknowledging that like, okay, as people are experimenting more and being more curious, we might make mistakes, but that's part of the process. 
And I think we also, you know, as leaders have to model that. So we have to model kind of walking in our own integrity and walking in our own authenticity and also being um, a safe space and also being open and curious and, and, you know, experimenting and all of that stuff. So I think that that's how, like, you can start to shift the culture towards one maybe where it doesn't feel safe to one where people feel like, oh, yeah, this feels safe and I actually belong here. I'm not just, you know, a little check mark on on a form. Yeah, that's important. I, I really like that idea of autonomy, too. I think that the more we, we feel that we're allowed to be out by ourselves or with ourselves, the more we're, we can be ourselves sometimes. Yeah. So I think that's super important. You know, I was thinking even more about this, this idea about embracing our authentic selves as you talk about and you focus on. Now, I think it's very hard in the leadership role oftentimes to focus on the authentic selves of the people around you. You have to be very intentional about it with people you do know. And oftentimes you'll get new people or, you, or you'll get other people you may not know, or, or you'll get put in these partnerships or collaboration environments where you might not know the team you're working with at all. So how do you kind of focus on authenticity with people and embracing it? Or what do you do to pull out you know, authentic behaviors or learn more about people in some of your coaching and leadership roles? Uh, so I think, especially with coaching, you know, or and even leadership roles, like people are showing up and you don't necessarily know them. You know, it's not someone that you've spent all of this time growing with and learning and kind of knowing the ins and outs. So I think that it's really important as a leader uh, and a coach, and I think that those kind of go hand in hand. I think it's important to be okay with silence and like observing. So I think that a lot of times you do have to take that time to like kind of quietly observe situations and see what's going on. I think that you have to ask um, like powerful questions that are allowing people to kind of start to tell you things about themselves uh, in really poignant ways. But I think that sometimes as a leader, we have to be okay with, I can take a little bit of a step back here and just observe what's going on and asking some questions so that I can start to inform some of that stuff for me. And I, I think as a coach, I mean, that's a lot of what I do is I ask a lot of questions and, you know, there's a lot of curiosity and, oh, I wonder. And uh, so I think it is about asking really strategic and powerful questions to be able to very quickly find out more about people so that you're able to start allowing them to, you know, step into the, the work that they need to, or the, the person that they need to be, the employee that they need to be. Um, the other thing that I think is okay uh, from a leadership standpoint sometimes is to ask people stuff about themselves. So I think that so often we think that we have to come in and know everything. And people always say that like, oh, well, how will you know? Um, like I, I teach I train coaches, so I train people who want to be coaches, and a lot of times students will say things like that, like, well, how do we know if our clients are better at processing this way, or how do we know what their strengths are, or how do, you know, these things, it's like, well, ask them, you know, <laughs> ask them what their strengths are, ask them how they like to be communicated with, I, you know, I think that's okay for us to ask questions and come from this place of like, well, I don't know this answer, so I'm going to ask, and I think that very often our, like, way of leadership in our society is that like the leader needs to know all of these things almost through like osmosis and that's just not the way it is right so I think that it's okay 
to come from that place of like not knowing and, and say like, okay, well, I'm going to ask you these like very strategic questions so I could find out. Uh, and then once you ask those questions, you know, how do you best like to work or how do you best like to be communicated with making sure that you're actually acting from that place. So not asking people questions and then completely ignoring it, but saying like, oh, you know, what are your strengths? Or, you know, how do you best do this? And then making sure that you're acting from that place with them. Yeah, I love those comments. And it's so true. You have to listen, but then show you actually heard what they said, right? Yeah. Through application. <laughs> Sometimes you act like you're listening, but then if you don't show the application that you lose that credibility even from the start. I learned a principle through coaching crisis management courses. After I got really good at you know doing crisis management, I started coaching and doing these courses and training and exercises. And I knew this principle in theory, this idea that when the leader speaks, it kind of shuts down dialogue because they're like, this is where we're going. So, in, and you see this a lot in crisis management because high stress environment, you, you know, when, when the leader tells you they've got a vision, it just sends everybody running. Well, what someone told me is that, you know, as a, a good leader will ask first and wait till they feel that all the opinion, all the good information is obtained, and then they'll share their direction. And yeah. only will they divert from that if they feel that the team needs direction to get going. And, and I've really, as I've coached people, I've watched this actually happen because when you're hyper-focused, you know, watching people as coaching, you know, cause you're, you're there just to watch them and help them. It, it helped me actually see this play out where people would, the leader would speak right away and it would just shut down all dialogue. And I'm like, yeah. wow, just right away. Just, and it kind of goes back to that old mentality. You talk about how we thought leaders need to know everything, but a good leader taps into the expertise of their team and, you know, pulls things around them. And I think even president Obama talked a little bit about that, how he worked on surrounding himself with really great people and then letting them do what, what they were experts at. And that that's yeah. valuable. We don't surround ourselves with dumb people. We don't, you know, go, go hire the worst people for organizations. So we should show them, you know, going back to autonomy, we should show them that we trust them and we want to hear what they have to say. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that continues to grow that culture then when they're like, oh, okay, like I'm a valued member of this team, you know, the leader trusts what I'm going to, to say, and they trust me to kind of go off and execute it. Then that gives that, that empowers them to keep doing it. And that just brings the entire team up. I remember this experience I had in Alaska when I was stationed in Alaska while you were talking to, I was on this committee to build these exercises for, and then in Alaska where I worked was Prince William Sound in Valdez, Alaska, where the Exxon Valdez oil spill happened. And so every year they do this massive exercise to prepare in case there's ever an oil spill again like that, that they're, they're very prepared. They have all this equipment, technology, and they bring these groups together. Well, some of the things that have happened since then is they created a community group that's their sole responsibility is to look out for the interests of the environment and the community so that that way they have a seat at the table and they have their own lens to look through. And then you have, of course, the state government, the federal government, us in the Coast Guard, and then you have the oil industry as well. And so we bring these groups together to plan an exercise. But what I learned really early on was that, you know, the community group, they had to always justify that they were needed to the community. So they were always trying to show deficiencies in oil or the regulators. And then the regulators were always on the defensive and the oil spill company was always worried about what, or I'm not going to disclose all my equipment because then I have to do all these extra inspections. And it just created this kind of environment where nobody was really being open and, and communicating. And I actually had just, you know, it was pretty relevant in my Gonzaga experience. And I'd taken some team building courses there and I was like, forget this. We're going to do a team building exercise at the beginning of every meeting, something small, get to know each other. And it was amazing to me as 
as the people started to get to know each other and learn their backgrounds, they really started to see that everyone at that table cared about the community and cared about the environment. And that if we could work together, we could actually do what was better for the community and the environment and be even more prepared in it. You know, I don't, I don't know that I had a massive role in it other than just kind of spurring them in that direction, but it really, those meetings changed over the course of a year to be way more productive. And it was very evident to me that, you know, going back to, you know, embracing people's authentic self. So I think not only embracing their authentic, but when we learn who people are, we're also more receptive to learning from them as well. I think that's so true. I mean, we're more receptive to learning from them. And I think then we're also able to see that they very likely have very similar goals that we do, you know, so they're, they're just another human on the other side of the table trying to probably do something similar than that we're trying to do. So I think, yeah, like when we're able to learn who people are and who their authentic self is, like, oh, okay, I see myself in that person. And that allows us to work together easier. Yeah, I love it. One thought I really wanted to touch on, so I don't want to get too far in the conversation, take up too much time, because I really I love to hear your comments and your focus on that. I, as we were preparing, I was talking to you about how I just recently learned about this concept of intersectionality. In case there's other listeners that are as ignorant as I was, I'm going to read a little bit about it and then ask you some questions. So it goes back to, I mean, Nyla already knew who had said it when I first mentioned to her. She was all over. She's like, oh yeah, by Crenshaw. Yep. Kimberly Crenshaw came up with this term in 1989 to highlight the unique position of compounding injustices faced by Black women at the intersection of race and gender by a problematic concurrence of the tendency to treat race and gender as mutually exclusive categories of experience and analysis. And then further research in 2019, Joseph and Winfield saw the use of intersectionality across academic disciplines as a tool to better understand social phenomenon, identity, and oppression. The term has expanded beyond its focus on Black women to include other areas and races um, like LBGTQ and others and class and reflecting on the term in 2017, Crenshaw advocates for its use as a tool to articulate specific inequities and advocate for intervention. And so summarizing, it's really when we have African-American or Black women and they have both these two minority groups, you know, women are treated separately than men and oftentimes in, in an injustice manner or in an unequal manner. And then we know that there's been many instances of inequality with African-American people and people of color. And so we too often we focus as inequality as a whole, and it doesn't separate these compounding effects of having two areas of inequality, both um, being a woman and being a woman of a person of color. And so I just, I was really impressed by this. And I, as I was talking to Nyla, I said, I feel like we're we're becoming more open to have increased dialogue about this. And I really would like to push the envelope to increase even more dialogue about that. And so my biggest question is, what are some thoughts that you have, Nyla, about how we can allow for a a more safe space to create a greater safe space for women of color to truly be their authentic selves? Because we have to acknowledge that for too long, they've been forced to oppress part of themselves to fit into certain cultures. So how do we open them up to participate from their authentic selves to have better dialogue? Because I believe very strongly that they have great things to contribute to our organizations and we need to do better about pulling those things out of them. Absolutely. I mean, so I think 
I think the, the interesting thing about intersectionality is that it, it really does speak to that a lot of times we see a lot of these identities in a silo. So it's like, okay, I'm a Black person. I'm a woman. Uh, maybe I'm a part of the LGBTQ community. Maybe I have disabilities. Uh, and so a lot of times we're seeing these things as a silo when that's not the way uh, life works. You know, you could have someone who has a little bit of all of those things, uh, or they have, you know, a couple of things, and that's what's making things more difficult, or that's why they're facing some of the inequities that they're facing or the injustices that they're facing. So I think, again, it's really important that we make sure that we are approaching people as a whole person, that we're looking at the whole person and we're looking at all of those lived experiences that are creating the identity that's in front of us. So I think that's probably the first step, honestly, is just being open to that, to say like, okay, everyone has all of these different lived experiences. You know, nobody is just one thing. They're not in just one silo. And then also, um, none of these groups are a monolith. So just because I'm, you know, you know, we have three black women in a room, doesn't mean that they're all kind of bringing the same thing or the same lived experience or, you know, any of the same stuff to the table. They could have, you know, vastly different experiences which can completely change their perspective. So I think that that's a really important factor is to, to recognize that, like none of these groups are a monolith and it's because of these different intersections and, and because of these uh, different lived experiences. So I think in order to start kind of shifting that narrative, I think it's to continue to challenge ourselves, especially if you're a dominant person. Uh, so if you're, you know, a white person or a man, um, continue to challenge the way that you see things because nobody thinks about men in that way. Nobody sees, you know, five men and say, oh, they must all be the same. Let's just ask Keith for the male opinion, you know? So I think it's kind of challenging ourselves in that way. And if you are kind of uh, one of the dominant groups in the room, uh, to challenge yourself to be like, okay, like, how am I approaching this in a way that's like kind of forcing people to be like a monolith or, or uh, forcing them to be a spokesperson for their, you know, whatever their group is. And then I think it's also just making sure so that makes means that you need to make sure that if you are really trying to build a, uh, an inclusive environment that it includes more of all of these different types of people so that means that you can't just have one black woman because there's no way that she could cover all of these different experiences uh, so you need to really make sure that you're saying like well how can we make sure that we're creating a truly inclusive environment where we have all of these different perspectives and then they feel safe to talk about their perspective and to, you know, share. And then as a group, we could come to like the best solution to whatever, you know, issue it is that we're tackling. Yeah, I, I love those thoughts. Those are just gold. I thank so much for sharing those. And it goes back to not just creating easy metrics of diversity, actually embracing true diversity. And also as a leader, stepping back, listening and observing, like you said, you know, if we do that more then you're not projecting onto people what they should or or must feel or or trying to be that monolith of you know speaking to people. I thought Ann and Scott Springer who teach at BYU Hawaii talked a little bit about this. You know, they they represent many different countries at BYU Hawaii. It's a very diverse community because they, you know, focus on the Polynesian and Micronesian and Asian countries as their their student base, but they're very careful not to have a student represent their own country because that 
they could be even within their own country. There's different cultural, there's socioeconomic statuses. There's all sorts of things that that fit into it. And even my personal background, I definitely am a, a Caucasian looking male. There's no doubt about it. But my mom was adopted out of a Native American tribe and her dad was a tribal member of the Tulalip tribes in Washington state. And, and because of that, not just because of, you know, her background, but also the years of adoption, you know, I grew up in a home full of substance abuse and many struggles that I had to, to get out of it. You know, my experience is quite different than most of the people I grew up around. And going back to your point, you know, I, you know, never am I asked to represent all white men. It just doesn't happen. You're right. So people, they embrace me for who I am. And I think we need to do more of that with everybody around us, embrace them for who they are. I always like to give people a challenge. This week, I want to give a twofold challenge. And it kind of goes back to that embracing people for who they are. And so the first step of that, I think Anila really hit the nail on the head, is that we have to take time to stop and observe the people around you and truly listen to them and ask good questions. They're not speaking, pull some information out of them. But then also, as you do so, make course corrections on how you're going to actually embrace that person on an individual basis. And as you do that, I think you'll find that you'll have a better response from the people around you. All right. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. I always like to give the, the guests the final thoughts. So anything you'd like to leave the listeners with as you, we close out this episode. My goodness, it's, <laughs> that's such a nice, broad <laughs> question. <laughs> um, I, I honestly think that it's just uh, really important. I mean, I, I, I talk about this so often, but I think it is really important that we're able to, first of all, again, come back home to ourselves and rediscover who we are and, um, you know, really sit down and ask ourselves sometimes those hard questions or, you know, journal or get outside or do whatever it takes for you to kind of start figuring out who that is. You know, who am I? Who am I really? And then from there, I think it's also really important that we figure out the ways that we can be ourselves fully in at work or at school or wherever we are just in life, because I think life is too short for us to go through life just feeling like we're constantly suppressing ourselves or like we're doing that on and off switch all the time. So I think those are my two big notes. And then I think the other thing is I'm just a big believer that leadership flows in all directions. So you don't have to wait until you achieve a certain place in your company or until you get a certain amount of degrees or you're making a certain amount of money. I just really believe that all of us have the ability to, to be leaders and to really discover who we are, figure out our best way to kind of step into ourselves and lead from that space and to kind of start small from where we are. So maybe that means that, you know, you're just a different type of leader when it comes to your family or in your personal life or, you know, even in the role that you have in your job. And then you just continue to build on that. Thanks so much. Some wonderful thoughts. You're definitely going to have to listen to this one multiple times. Thanks for joining us. Thanks all of you out there for listening. Please share, like, subscribe to the podcast. If you know of anybody that you think would be a good guest, please let me know. I'm always open to learning new people and and gaining greater leadership perspectives and opportunities. And also the blog is available at www.thatallmightbeedified.com. And thanks again for joining us on another episode of the All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership and have a wonderful day.